Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 219. You want, I can talk through a recent example. We helped TikTok. They, they turned to us and said, can you help us with this problem of misinformation and the spread of potential misinformation. Oh, let's go straight there because that's the voice of Evelyn Gosnell, the Harvard-educated behavioral scientist and managing director of Irrational Labs, an organization founded by social scientists to do two things, help individuals and institutions make better decisions, and, as you will hear in this episode, help companies like Google and TikTok and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and everywhere else people trade information, combat the spread of misinformation on the internet and beyond. I'm Evelyn Gosnell. I'm a behavioral scientist at Irrational Labs. So Irrational Labs is a behavioral design firm. We help companies use insights from behavioral science for good. Irrational Labs is one of several organizations working with individuals, institutions, corporations, governments, and so on to try to get a handle on how to be, well, how to be people in a new information ecosystem where our primate brains, which evolved to spread gossip and argue and debate and deliberate and play status games and manage our reputations among trusted peers and signal our attitudes about what we perceive as us versus what we perceive as them. These brains, shaped by natural selection to do all that, these organizations are helping the places where we gather to do these things create better environments in which to do them. So I invited Evelyn Gosnell, managing director of one of those organizations on this show, a podcast about the science of judgment, decision-making, bias, and reasoning, to get a behind-the-scenes look at how they use the latest research and conduct their own research to improve the world from the perspective that less misinformation is good. Here she is talking about how Irrational Labs worked with TikTok to limit the spread of misinformation on that platform. Yeah, so we used a behavioral design approach to to kind of think about this problem and how do we, I won't say solve it (laughs) because (laughs) that's too ambitious, but how do we mitigate it? How do we address it? And so I think one way of thinking about this is what is the common approach, right? What do we typically do in companies and in in, um, thinking about a problem? And the typical response is, let's go and ask users. Let's show them a potential intervention we're going to do, and let's ask them to tell us how they feel about it, how they think that they would behave, 
<laughs> you can kind of see where I'm going with this, mm -hmm. right? We know that humans were actually pretty bad at predicting how we, we might behave. Um, so we used a process of behavioral design saying, okay, let's, the first step of that is saying, what is the research, right? We're not going to start from scratch. We're going to look at um, what's already out there. What are the psychologies at play when we think about this problem? And we came up with two, two main ones. I mean, we, we, we went broad, but I'm going to give you the short story, okay. story of this. We can do a whole episode if we want. On, yeah, on we're doing it now, right now. Let's go. <laughs> um, so the short of it is that two key uh, principles or psychologies are at play here. One is just the big one from behavioral science. If we think about any big insight from behavioral science, I would pick friction. Fr tiny frictions matter a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and so this idea of creating friction in a process of, you know, when, when we want something to do something, we remove the friction. When we don't want someone to do something, such as share potential misinformation, maybe we create a little bit of friction. So that's one insight. Um, friction also, by the way, the, the reason it's so important in this context of TikTok is that um, you can think about cold states and hot states. So in TikTok, if you've been on TikTok, sometimes it's like you're in this hot state. Mm. And how do we shift people into a cold state? We need to create a moment of pause <laughs> and that can help. So that's yeah. one, one principle that we landed on um, in this case to, to use. And a second one was um, some research by David Rand and Gordon Pennycook, which was around the value that we have around accuracy. So if you've done any research on misinformation, you might think, oh my gosh, human, we just really don't, clearly we don't care about accuracy. You can put flags up, people just don't care. It doesn't matter, right? It turns out if you study this, you people do actually value accuracy. We do care about it. The trick here is it's not like we're walking around in the world, like remembering, oh, I value accuracy. I value mm -hmm. accuracy. <laughs> it, it's, it's, we need the reminder at the right time, right in the moment of seeing potential misinformation. Um, so let me back up a little bit. So, sure. so they have content moderators. Um, it's very, it's quote unquote, easy to know what to do with blatant misinformation. This is demonstrably false. We can remove this. Good to go. As you probably know, in the space of misinformation, so much of it is in a gray area. We can't immediately prove that it's demonstrably false, but that we have, you know, some concerns about this. How do we? How do we do? This is the con. This is the space that we're dealing with. So we don't want to take it down. But what do we do? Mm -hmm. So in that moment, we add this label on top of the video, you know, about caution. <laughs> this content has not been verified, and on top of that, so that's the prompt about accuracy. And then I'm getting to the friction point. If and when they click the share button, we create friction. We remind them with that same content and ask them again, do you actually want to proceed? Share anyway, cancel. Mm -hmm. um, and so with that intervention, found a 24% reduction in shares of this flag content wow. against a control. 24% is a lot. I mean, like if you read a lot of papers, uh, you know, the impact, sometimes the impact can be very low, like 5%. And even that's considered like, let's go light a bonfire and dance naked around it because that's something. I mean, uh, especially at scale, right? Take how many, I, I won't share the numbers because I'm not allowed to, but we're talking about <laughs> millions of videos here, right? Like this is, yeah. this is so 5% of multiple millions <laughs> is still a lot. It's a significant swing. So yeah, we were very proud of of 24% and obviously, you know, worked with them. They, they were involved. Um, we consulted with them, shared, you know. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so I want to talk about this uh, accuracy thing. When we are, when we have these 
goals as we're processing information. Accuracy, of course, we, you know, any animal that wants to survive wants to have a pretty clear understanding of what's going around them. But then there'll be these other higher, uh, these goals that will motivate you more strongly, which is signaling to your peer group or um, uh, reputation management. Uh, they're just, uh, just, you know, eating and sleeping and not getting, not dying, uh, finding a mate. These are all things that can sort of push accuracy goals down, uh, in context within certain places, uh, just spending lots of time with, with like flat earther communities and, uh, conspiracy theory communities. You can often see this accuracy goal getting scrambled. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, I, I just, just sort of. I'm just, uh, I'm not looking for any particular answer. I just want to hear your thoughts on, like, I hear you, the accuracy goals should be number one, or often we feel that is a, a true thing about human beings until something scrambles that. What, what do you have to say about just that general concept? Yeah, I mean, like I said, in this case, it, it's, it, it, we showed, we demonstrated that the accuracy prompt does have an effect, right? But 24% was not 100. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that there we... I would love, I have, you know, this was one intervention. Um, there's a million more that we could do. There's so many different areas. So what you're touching on is how the kind of the social status piece, right? So I would explore um, other areas of how can I play with social status? Part of the problem with potential misinformation is like a lot of the content could be a little bit more inflammatory. It like creates hmm more kind of strong emotions, which is more likely to kind of create likes and comments and all the things and engagement. Um, and so it's, there's a positive reinforcement mechanism there. And so I would think about, hmm, if I'm designing the system, I need a negative reinforcement mechanism. So imagine a world where your video gets flagged. Now people can't like it. Flagged <laughs> videos don't get likes. There's no like count or, um, you know, there's there's other creative ways that we can think about <laughs> removing kind of social incentives or almost creating light social penalties um, yeah. around this. Yeah, no, it, no, no count. Maybe maybe your follower count. I could even go more aggressive, right? Your follower count no longer shows to people. If you have any flag wow. videos up, uh, we, we could go aggressive if we wanted to. There's a whole spectrum. And then whichever platform we were working with, of course, we'd have to buy into it. We'd have to persuade them. There would have to be alignment there. Um, I guess what I'm saying is this was one intervention. Yeah. Whole, I mean, there's all kinds of areas we could explore. We we were targeting in this case the viewer. I could also think about targeting the poster. This is so exciting. I, don't, I just want to I just want to walk around in circles for a minute. The, I can't tell you how compelling this is to me. I, I find this absolutely thrilling that you're doing this kind of work. Um, I had I have brainstormed and imagined all sorts of things that could happen and had all sorts of conversations about this with people who are like, what if, what if, what if I haven't met anyone who's actually doing it. And just the idea of introducing social costs within the domain that these social costs and rewards have been generated. Like you talk about social media of any kind, or you talk about any kind of social media mechanisms like are in, that are in place in something like YouTube or TikTok. It's difficult to talk about sometimes because we start doing the this construction of like, well, that's the internet world, and then this is the real world. And then when you're talking about human behavior, you know, it's like, well, there's just human behavior. There's no internet world. There's there's just contexts in which we operate, and the way you behave in at the workplace versus how you behave at home versus how you behave with your family. These contexts alter the behaviors. 
that are generated by all these motivations that we carry with us between contexts, dealing with the mechanisms that have been added to our media uh, environments, like likes and follower accounts, that ping these ancient mechanisms is exciting to me. I don't, I'm not, this is not a question. I'm just telling you that I think this is really rad. <laughs> and that's a really great way to, to go at it. When I have this discussion, uh, that's where the sort of hand-wringing begins. We're like, well, yeah, but well, what are we going to do about the fact that we're social primates and there's nothing that's going to stop us from wanting to do these things? And whether or not Mark Zuckerberg and his team decided to uh, manipulate those things from the get-go or they lucked into it, it doesn't matter. It's still happening. So now what do you do? The bell's already been rung. How did you get into this kind of work? Into behavioral science? Yeah. Like how, what led you to this world? <laughs> That's a longer story. I um, want to hear it if okay. you don't mind. We'll do the longer version of it. So I grew up um, moving around a lot. Um, uh, parents were sort of in the foreign service and so grew up mainly in the Soviet Union slash Russia and China. And I think that made me, all that moving around and seeing the different cultural contexts change, the rules of society change, made me very curious about what's nature nurture, you know, why why does one country have this definition of beauty and another is a very different one or gender norms and Mm. all these things made me very curious, Uh, studied cultural anthropology um, as an undergrad as a result. (laughs) <laughs> when you graduate with that kind of degree, sometimes it's a little bit hard to know how to pay the bills, what to do next. Sure. So did a bit of a pivot and ended up as a product manager, was in luxury goods, uh, Christian Dior, was in Paris, kind of had a little bit of a devil wears Prada lifestyle, a little wow. bit that story. <laughs> um, but then ultimately, I think at my core, I'm just, I guess, a social scientist and I needed to, to come back. I, I uh, read Dan Ariely's book, Predictably Irrational, mm-hmm. had this sort of light bulb moment like, oh, oh my gosh, people are paid money to have fun all day. Like, mm-hmm. let me do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I made this uh, pivot back to, I think, my roots of, of, of a social scientist and just a curious, curious human about, about humans. Well, congratu- congratulations getting coming back to uh, you know, having a nice prodigal story coming returning to the source. You're working with titans of the, of the of this world, and now you're a titan in that world. I just think it's great. The I'm looking over at my notes here. Like the you're, you're this company is running experiments. Uh, you do hundreds of of sort of training uh, endeavors. Um, you work with all sorts of teams from Google and TikTok and on. So let me. Uh, when we're in misinformation, I want, uh, I want to talk a little bit about some of these, uh, big takeaways. Uh, you wrote about this recently, bouncing off of what you're talking about with TikTok. You have these sort of like big takeaways from the research so far that you've done. Um, one of those is create opt-outs. Uh, I know we've already touched on it, but if you were to talk about that specifically, what does that entail? So let's, let's talk about TikTok as an example, right? This is not real work that's being done right now. There's no active, um, uh, pursuit of this right now, but let's, let's just play with it in theory. So TikTok, why, why did you, actually, you, you're probably a bad example of why you first, no, no, the, average person, the average person who signed up for TikTok, right? Like the, the teenager or the 20-something who signed up for TikTok, what, what motivated them? What, why are they on TikTok? I think one answer would be um, just diversion, fun, right? Mm-hmm. Think about the early days, like all those dance videos, like it was an entertainment and it was something for levity. 
Um, and we found this in some of our, when we did our, our intervention, of course, we did all kinds of pre-research, pre uh, qual and quant uh, on MTurk and all, all of the things. So we basically found that there's a significant part of the population that actually doesn't want any sort of political content or potential. Mm. I just don't want that. I'm just here for funny. I'm just here for something light to, to lift me up. So if you think about the intervention that we did, it's a little bit of whack-a-mole, like boom, a video pops up, we put a label on it, boom, a video pops up, we put a label on it. I'm, we, as behavioral scientists, our, it's our job, it's our challenge to think of like, what are the bigger swings that we can take? An opt-out is a way bigger swing. So imagine during onboarding or first sign up or however, wherever we put it, we did something where it was like, by the way, um, you know, we moderate content and there's potential flagged videos. If there's potential misinformation, you know, we'd have to copy. <laughs> we'd have to work on the copy around this, but something like that. And said, um, we're automatically going to opt you out. If you would like to opt in, check this button, check this box, mm -hmm. right? That's the very paternalistic way of doing it. You would have it, most people not see all sure. any videos that got flagged. You could also do a binary. You could do kind of a forced choice. That's a little more kind of equal between the two. Anyway, lots of ways of designing this, but either way, that's a way bigger swing. I'm hitting millions more videos <laughs> if I do that wow. than if I just play the whack-a-mole game. Yeah. Um, the other way you could do this, by the way, is imagine they saw the, the, the flagged video. They chose not to share it. We kind of, that's a signal to us. Ooh, they don't want to share potential misinformation. Oh, by the way, do you also want to opt out of ever seeing these? Mm -hmm. Boom, that, make that ask. So there, that's the kind of thinking that the insight here is like, how do we go bigger? How do we, and I think behavioral science overall, right? We can, maybe this is a segue into big decisions. Behavioral science as a field has so many wonderful insights about nudges. How do we get someone to, how do we increase the probability of a flu shot? How do we get someone to eat? More, one more serving of vegetables this week. How do we get someone to go to the gym one more time this week? That's nice. Mm -hmm. And let's think about big swings, right? Like um, going to the gym one more time this week versus, hmm, let's talk about like home buying, right? Home buying is a really big decision. If you buy a house that's close to a gym, that's mm -hmm. going to likely have a much bigger effect than any little nudge that I'm going to make on you yeah. um, here and there, right? So big swings like that. I love this one a lot. And, and I'm sure people who listen to the show probably are aware of the the big opt-in, uh, often used as an example. I think Dan puts it in his book about the um, uh, organ donors. Uh, you know, the, the it's much more uh, opting in uh, is a thing you have to do uh, and opting in and opting out is very powerful in this context. I find that, uh, I love that you grabbed a big swath before we move on to the next thing. I guess I, I forgot to even ask the, um, how are these videos, how are these things flagged? I'm sure some of this you can't share, but like, uh, is there, I guess the big question is, is there a very smart artificial intelligence algorithm thing that knows what misinformation looks like or are human beings having to do this flagging? Human beings. Wow. I, I don't know all the, again, I, I'm sure there's much more complex systems, but there's definitely an entire large uh, content moderation team that has to, has to look at these. And, wow. And, and what's all. your response to, and this is not a gotcha thing, and you can say I don't feel like talking about it, but uh, the there are people who um, feel that, I mean, look at me trying to be a politician here. Um, there are people <laughs> who feel like a lot of the content that gets flagged as misinformation seems to be amenable to my attitudes and values. And I feel like I, uh, my particular demographic is being targeted for its politics. 
I mean, what do you, uh, this is something, this comes up enough that people talk, con- Congress people talk about this sometimes when we get into content moderation. What's the, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it is complicated. I think, um, of course, companies do need to be careful. Um, I think it was, I, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I'm pretty sure we can double check this after this sure. and, and look it up. But I'm pretty sure that um, Rand and Pennycook actually have a nice study on this where they use lay people as content moderators and basically find that they're equally as effective. There's no greater variance in their response compared oh, to so actual good. real, you Check know, trained uh, moderators. So that's some cool stuff. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, 
and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything. And you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I'll run through uh, just the two of these and then we'll get into the big decisions. Uh, shifting a, a, your business model um, from met- the metrics that define the success. I'm, I'm feeling that we're talking about this is something that I harp on a lot, but I'm not the only person, obviously, but it's um, engagement. This is what uh, the, fa- the Facebook whistleblower was talking about recently. Um, there is a narrative in public discourse that some companies only care about engagement and if engagement is people arguing about a conspiracy theory then who cares if that you know is deleterious to the to democracy um just what are your thoughts there and how do you and how do you look at this as as in the efforts that you put forth yeah i agree i think that the metrics i mean again (laughs) we could do a whole podcast on how much metrics drive behavior um, it's something that we do really commonly with teams, even actually, even before we agree to an engagement, they say, Hey, we want to hire you help us with X. And we're like, that's nice. But what are your key KPIs? What are you measuring your employees are on? Cause that's going to tell us if we actually are aligned uh, for good. So I do agree that fundamentally we probably have a, a we have a problem around trying to drive engagement. Um, I, I would love, I would love if we could rewind time and go back and did not create um, this model that we are in now, right? Which is we've anchored basically on zero. We've created 
like apps um, are free. We've created this anchor and norm around free. We never should have done that. We would have had a much richer landscape of apps if we had never done that. Imagine, <laughs> you're going to see that I have some very paternalistic kind of <laughs> vibes, but imagine. I'm here for it. Go for it. That Apple and like the marketplace, the, the marketplace that controlled this never allowed. You could, you can't, you can't offer an app for free. Any app must be paid, even if it's a small amount. What we did is we created a norm around zero and now it's impossible to charge. Like mm. the, the few apps that try to charge, have a very, very hard time of doing it. And if you think about what that did is it favored any sort of big player that had other sources of income, had other sources of, you know, it favored that and it completely undervalued the engineer, the true work that needs to be done to make, make an app. Like the story, the, the example that I like to give on this is like, imagine an app for parents of seventh graders who are trying to help them with their math homework, right? Seventh grade, eighth grade, maybe you don't quite remember that, that math. I'm like, I want an app that helps me with that. And I can connect with other parents doing this. And right, that in, in theory, it'd be a wonderful thing. That type of app will never exist right now because we don't have the, the there's no revenue model that will, will allow that. But if we rewind time and we go back to the beginning and we had never set up a world where we had anchored on zero, that kind of thing could exist and much more that type of, you know, rich, um, helpful, useful things for people where, yeah, you pay, you know, it sounds ridiculous now, right? Cause we're not used to it, but it, like, imagine, yeah, you paid $5 a month or $3 a month or whatever. Um, we would have been in a very different world. And I, I regret that. I wish we had, you know, we wouldn't, I don't think we'd be in the place that we are now with everything being ad driven. This is a great hot take, and please do a TED Talk about this. Uh, because Anchoring on Zero, also that's a great name for a book uh, if you ever decide to, to get out there. Uh, that I'm a, I'm a stickler for good titles or 85% of the work. This is something that I really wanted to talk to you about, and I was happy that you mentioned it and that this is part of the research. You know, the motivation for most conspiratorial communities is belonging. The original you know, uh, motivation is, oh, here are some people who see the world kind of like me or are scared of the same things I'm scared of or distrust the same people I distrust. Often, the primary part of this is feeling marginalized and alone. Uh, tell me a little bit about your research in this regard and what uh, we can do about this aspect of things. Yeah, so I don't have direct research on this idea. I think that's a known thing, right? We have... <laughs> <laughs> we, we know that we have a problem societally. We know, you know... Uh, bowling alone, we we yeah. know that the loss of of churches. That's a deep cut. A, I really appreciate that. That's cool. As an institution, we we need a replacement for church, and I don't think we've that's we've it that that out yet. I'm so glad you just said that out loud. There you go. Yes, a secularized a secularized world full of uh, epistemic chaos means people are going to be gravitate toward who are some people I can hang out with routinely, uh, who you know maybe would invite me over to play a board game or or. Uh, uh, I grew up in a small town. If you were into Dungeons and Dragons, you were going to play by yourself. Uh, very, you'd be very lucky to find another person. Um, but now, that's not the case. I can find other people easily, and that's true for. And then you know, that's the big reveal. Everything uh, that we we no longer are geographically limited to our interests, values, uh, nerdishness, and all that. But that's also true for like political angst and racism and all sorts of other stuff. Um, so I'm just, you know, I'll, now, now you riff. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think it's a couple of things. I think one, it, it is the algorithmic bias, right? It is the like, um, you know, 
guy posts picture of him with his cat gets two likes guy posts flat earth something or other or any insert any kind of um, conspiracy theory and gets all of a sudden you know there's favoring of, of that so lots of likes lots of shares lots of comments you know he's now learned like oh that's what I'm going to do. That's how I feel belonging in community and all the things. So I think that's one piece. I think the second piece is slightly more complicated, but I do think it's worth talking about. It again goes back to this idea of engagement and metrics and what are we solving for? So if we're solving for more eyeball time on the app, on whichever social media app, that's one thing. But imagine a world where people are on Messenger going back and forth and we actually know that they're in the same city. Hey, by the way, here's a coffee shop near guy. You guys want to meet there? You know, hmm. again, COVID complicates a little bit of this, but sure. let's pretend, you know, we, we are exiting one day out of this and going back to a world where um, I'd love us. There's so many interventions we could think about where we actually um, bring people in person together. And yeah. again, not, and maybe not in that case of like, you're the only person in the town who likes Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> and, you know, but are there other people, are there other hobbies? Are there other moments? There probably are lots of opportunities where we could try and nudge and connect people in person um, and I think we're, we're the, the apps are probably not doing that as much because of the, the business model and the engagement model. Right. With the time we have left, let me talk a little bit about uh, this other thing that, y- that y'all do over there, which is uh, help people make big decisions. Um, I, uh, let me pluck something out of here. I've looked at, I watched your fantastic uh, talk on all of this. Um, and... I, I wanted to talk about something that's happening all around me. And uh, so I assume, uh, like most people, if it's happening to me, it's everybody. There's a lot of talk about moving. Um, a lot of people, COVID told them, maybe I don't want to live here anymore. People are moving from big states to small states. Some people who've stayed in small towns their whole lives are moving to big towns. That's a big decision uh, for sure. And I'm wondering, uh, let's just jump in. Like when, what comes to mind immediately when we start talking about how people behave in a moment like this, where they've reached a point where they're going to make one of these huge decisions and how can we get, uh, how can we make some sort of irrational uh, or deleterious uh, decisions and how can we mitigate that? Yeah, I think in the space of home stuff and where we live, there's so many potential kind of behavioral biases and, and again, quote unquote mistakes that we can make. Right. So mm-hmm. often we can talk about how we probably, the systems are designed Um the tools that we use, we probably spend more than we uh, should. Mm-hmm. We often probably buy the wrong house, quote unquote. If we're optimizing, when I say wrong, I'm saying if we're optimizing for certain things, uh, the choice that we make in the house actually doesn't end up optimizing for that. So what I mean by that is we tend to look at a house and make a decision on whether to buy it based on its features. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's a granite countertop, yay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we look at the features, we look at the square footage. We're not making the choice of the house to buy based on the features of the life you would have in that house. Oh, this is cool. Please tell right? me more. So back to, we, st- we opened with this idea of, is your house closer to, close to a gym, right? So do we want to think about like habits, these things that I want to do, I want to go to the gym, I want to, find ways to intervene on myself and nudge myself to go to the gym more frequently. Well, the biggest swing that you can probably take there, uh, there's a few, but like one of them is just live really close to a gym or a park Mm. or whatever, whatever Mm -hmm. that can give you easy access to physical activity. Um, Friends, how close are you to your friends? Huge impact, right? Again, if we 
backing up, what are the big insights from social science? What are the big conclusions we can make, if any? I talk about friction. Another one is social connection really, really matters. And actually, where you end up living, it's like friction and social connection combined. How far are you from your friends? I think we just underestimate. Oh, yeah, you're a 30-minute drive away. You're a 45-minute drive away. That's just going to be less likely that you're going to interact uh, with your friends. By the way, <laughs> our co-founder, Kristen Berman, has kind of a, we jokingly call it a, a commune. She's got kind of a co-living. <laughs> She's solved, as a social scientist, this idea of friction um, with of arranging plans with friends going, are you free on two? No, I got blah, blah, blah. On two. Oh, are you free next? Third? No, 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 I've got this. All the back and forth around that you just get rid of because you live with your friends. They're right. <laughs> They're right there. You design your life for social connection. So I think that's another uh, big area where we might buy the quote unquote wrong house. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I encourage anyone who's listening to uh, check out, I'll have a link to the presentation you put out that uh, had things from, uh, diet, exercise, dating apps, um, all sorts of uh, interesting things that relate to, I mean, obviously relationships are a huge thing to think about as far as big decisions. Um, changing jobs, retirement, homes. Uh, also eggs, uh, you talk about eggs a good bit. Uh, uh, I will not ruin that because it's fun to see at the presentation. Um, the, um, go they're going to think what kind of eggs, yeah, they're going to... That's it. Let, just let the curiosity hang out Great. there. Uh, it, it, it's I'm trying to increase engagement with your uh, content. <laughs> I will say we do have um, uh, so many a few years ago we built. You talked about a rational labs training program. We love teaching people about behavioral science. There is an application process. We accept people who are okay. doing it for, for good. We're, if you sell cigarettes, we're not going to accept you in our boot camp. Um, but we have a new. Um, a version of that. We have a, a cohort where you do it together with others. It's all online uh, now. It's over Zoom, and uh, that, so that's a new lead. Okay, so how would how would someone find that, and how would they apply for it? Um, it's on our website, irrationallabs.com, and you can access it through there. And, and the application is there. Here, let's then let's take the last few minutes to to speculate wildly. I talk to a lot of people. I'm sure you do too. Who are Huge naysayers and uh, catastrophizers who are seeing that everything is over uh, the because of especially with vaccine hesitancy, but then with the insurrection, uh, with the elections that uh, U U.S. elections and with uh, Brexit and all manner of things like that, and there is this real anxiety among some people who like to produce hot takes that the social media and the internet has just ruined not just democracy, but also our relationship as human beings to one another in some way. I'm wondering what your thoughts are in this regard. I tend to be a almost Pollyanna-ish optimist who thinks that we just need to form a literacy for these things and, and create new best practices and rebuild the world as it is. But as someone who is actually out there t trying to like save us all as a species... Um, what are your thoughts on, on this sort of very present sort almost like moral panic anxiety about how where it's, there's no, that truth is dead and that, uh, conspiracies theorists rule and, um, democracy is in peril. What do you think? That's a hard question. I do tend to think there is a lot of weight to that. And I do think we need to take the problem in front of us very seriously. What I am uplifted by is how many 
good, smart people are actually working towards these things. So, you know, the TikTok example alone, right? I was, um, I came away from that with deeper respect for, there really are, first of all, the work, this work is hard. <laughs> and so to stand up and be willing to do the hard work, roll up your sleeves, figure it out, learn, fail, you know, pivot, all the things. Um, I had, yeah, just deep respect. The team that I work with, they were super motivated and that exists across, you know, that wasn't just there, right? There, there are lots and lots of smart people um, kind of working on this. But I think you're right in that some of this is going to be about breaking things and redoing them. You know, we, we, the system that we're working with shapes our environment, mm-hmm. um, shapes our behavior, shapes our, um, it's the context, right? The context shapes, yeah. shapes our behavior. Um, and so I think this example comes from, I'm pretty sure it's Renee DeResta. I don't know if you've talked to her. She's another expert on, on misinformation. And I hope I'm attributing correctly. But I really liked uh, one idea she put out, which is, you know, how we've built this, how we've built social media, like this idea even of like something gets labeled or not, or something gets taken down or not, that assumes that we know what is true at any given moment. And that is not how we work that's not how knowledge and truth works. We learn more information. We adapt the lab, like the origins of COVID probably is one really good example. In the beginning, it was like, oh, talking about a lab leak. That's this giant conspiracy. Now it's shifting. And our perception on that is, is different. Our knowledge, what more, more information. So her suggestion was, what if we had a more of a trackable kind of history, right? Like think of Wikipedia, where you can kind of see this was the original state. This is what we originally thought was true. And then these, here's the kind of edit history. Um, could we, I, I don't know. I mean, that sounds philosophically really nice. I think it would be really hard work to say. So what exactly for me, my mind immediately goes to, so what does that look like in a screen? How do mm-hmm. I design that? What is that? How do I translate that into something real conceptually nice? Now what's the real product look of that? I don't know, but that's, exciting that space where people are working hard thinking about this again you build something like like that you test it you validate it you learn back to our tiktok study we did a condition we had a hypothesis one of our hypotheses you know we were surprised by it turned out mm, th- this didn't matter right in our intervention before we launched the actual in product experiment of the control and the treatment we showed people we said look at this what we're planning to do something like this how would you behave people's self prediction is oh a label would have no effect on my behavior zero so if we had left it in a world where we just do research like that, we would have been incorrect, right? Instead, what we found was a 24% reduction in shares. So this is the power. If we are to do this work, if we came up with something like Rene DeResta's idea of like this Wikipedia thing where we see the history and the evolution of our thought, um, great, that's lovely. And how do we test it? What works? What doesn't work? Does it work equally on all demographics? Does it work enduring over time so many things we have we have to roll up our sleeves and study and think about and measure so that that goes along with the darren brown thing that was actually the 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 simon's um uh change blindness stuff because the thing that got me wanted the the thing that started my you are not so smart and everything that's that spun off from that wasn't that people can be tricked i mean that would just be like you know it wasn't that people could be tricked or misled or misdirected like in a magic trick or something it was the confidence that you could could not be and the reluctance to admit that you had been that's the part that fascinated me because in the person swap thing um in the lab 30 to to 
30% to, to half of the uh, subjects did not realize that the person they were talking to had been switched out in the mid-conversation. But in the debrief, when they asked them, hey, if this was to happen to you, do you think you would notice it? They're like, absolutely. Of course I would. And then they would be like, hey, look, it happened to you. And no, that's incredible to me. That's the, that's the, the juice. But also... Some people, a smaller a smaller cohort within that cohort, refused to believe that that had happened, and they thought they had been. Tr- that's where the trick was, tricking them into thinking that they had had a somebody switch. That's intensely fascinating to me, and that's very important for the kind of work that you're doing because uh, it's people. Yes, if you ask people, "Will this work?" they'll say, "Absolutely not." Until we do the science, we can't depend on that sort of self estimation. And that's like a huge lesson from a hundred years of social science, as far as I'm concerned. That's the thing. That's me. the thing. But and not all companies are quite there yet. So yeah. there's a huge reliance on, oh, let's let's go and get qualitative feedback. And again, I'm not dissing we we do that as well, but you cannot just rely on let's show users the thing and ask that to them to tell us how they might, you know, behave. Let me let me yes, I don't even know what to do about that. That's like the drop the mic like statement right there is uh, I can see why there are certain corporate cultures who would be resistant because human beings individually are resistant to this idea. There's a study that I'm going to have on the show uh, coming up soon. And I'd like to hear what you have to think about this. The it's a, you've probably seen it. There's Swedish researchers where they took the same sort of uh, change blindness thing and they took it to into politics. And it blows my mind. I just want to hear what you have to say about it. We may not even put this in the show, but the, they, gave people a, a, a list of uh, topics that like wedge issues and they asked them to on a scale from zero to 10, like, do you agree with these statements? So it'd be something about the border or welfare or stuff like that. And then uh, while they're talking to them, they do a little magic trick and they f- switch the answers completely to answers the person did not give. So if they were low, let's say they had circled one, they'd change it to like a six. Uh, and then they would ask them in the next part, so tell me why do why do you say why are you so strongly against this? And the person from that point forward would then say, well, I mean, when you think about it, and they would produce all these arguments defending a position they do not carry. What do you think of that? I'm not surprised. I mean, I think it's fascinating, and you know, that, that those kind of studies are so fun to share with people. Um, but it's kind of like going back to what we talked about earlier, which is the the organ donation thing, right? You whichever way your country happens to fall. Um, so you're defaulted one way or another, um, you will then produce this beautiful rationalization around, oh yeah, that's because I was brought up to be very altruistic and we get back and na, na, na. or alternately, you just tell a beautiful story around, oh yeah, we don't trust, you know, I don't trust doctors and we just unclear what they do with it. And there seems to be like incentive misalignment. And yeah, so we, we just are amazing. <laughs> we have amazing capacity for rationalization. So what do you think is the motivation to rationalize a position that you may not, like this happens in internet arguments where someone uh, on one day, they may say one thing on another day, they may say another a pollster can come to your house on one day and you may answer one way then in on the next day you answer differently regardless though the second phase is if i ask you to defend your position you will regardless of your position even if it's uh counter to the position you may have held previously what do you what is the motivation to pr- produce these rationalizations uh even if i've tricked you into defending something you don't believe yeah well we want to be seen we think of ourselves as like rational smart people so if i 
answered that, there was clearly a good reason for it. So I'm going to find it for you right now. If you'd like to keep up with Evelyn Gosnell and Irrational Labs, you can go to irrationallabs.com. You can also follow Gosnell on Twitter at Evelyn Gosnell. That's G-O-S-N-E-L-L and Irrational Labs. They're on Twitter too, at Irrational Labs. That's it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McRaney, M-C-R-A-N-E-Y. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Yes, it was a blog before it was a podcast, so now I'm stuck with that handle. We're also on Facebook slash you are not so smart like half a million people on facebook i put stuff there check it out and if you'd like to support this one person operation help make it better help pay for transcription and other features go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free but the higher amounts get you posters t-shirts signed books and other stuff the opening music that's clash by caravan palace the other music in this episode is from incompetech can find Incompetech on the internet where they will give you music in exchange for money. Tell everyone you know about this show, and that will support the show better than anything. Just tell people about the episodes that really updated your thinking, gave you some value. I really appreciate that. And check back in in about um, two weeks for a fresh new episode, maybe sooner. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.